listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Caleb Land, and I'm one of the pastors uh, up in McDonough. My family and I always love being here with you in Locust Grove. Feels like a family reunion in a good way, not a bad way. All right, we are going to be talking about peace today. If you want to um, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, couple things up front. You're going to turn there, but The reason we talk about peace at Christmas, it starts really with Zechariah and his prophecy about John and what John's going to mean for Jesus. And uh, so back in Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 77 through 79, Zechariah says this. He says about uh, the coming of Jesus and uh, the, the birth of his own son, he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What an incredible message that is to speak down to us through the ages I love that metaphor, the sunrise visiting us from on high and giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And what a way that that is to describe the human condition, where we all live in the shadow and in this shadow of death with this reality that faces us. So we may feel that in a lot of different ways. We may need this peace that only God can provide in a lot of different ways. It may be in something very minor, like I worked hard today and I come home and all of a sudden one of my, uh, you know, my daughter bumped into my son and they fought for an hour for some reason that I don't really completely understand. And then our dog steals, you know, the ox out of the nativity and we got to chase him around the house for 30 minutes. And, you know, it may be something just the chaos of life. Like I've had a hard day. I don't feel like dealing with this stuff. I need just a little peace and quiet right now. Or it may be, that you coming into this place today and you have a real burning need for the peace that only God can give. Maybe you um, have, have lost a loved one or a friend or maybe you have been diagnosed with a disease or maybe you're struggling with your health or your job. Maybe you find yourself in a place where you know there's no way that you can get out of the situation that you're in without God intervening in some incredible miraculous ways in your life. It may be something very minor to something very major. And if you don't know that you're desperately in need of the peace that only God can supply, well, then hopefully I'll be able to convince you of that as we go through uh, a couple of passages this morning. But peace is not something that is a new concept. It's not something that that we've only realized like, oh, we need this just recently. This desire for peace is, is across cultures, across the human condition, and throughout history. One of the first um, groups of people that tried, they're like, we're going to bring peace to the whole world. They came up with this idea was the Roman Empire, about the time that Jesus came into the world. And they had this idea of the the Pax Romana, the the peace of Rome, 
And they said that everywhere that the Roman Empire extended to, they were going to bring peace to all these people who were kind of at war with each other. But the Roman historian Tacitus, who was a historian in the best way because he never let the truth get in the way of a good story, uh, told the told story of the, the, the far reaches of the Roman Empire and what's today Scotland, the very borderland where they were trying to conquer the rest of the British Isles. And there was this, uh, this great Scottish leader. He was actually Caledonian but at the time, but that Scottish descent, um, Calgacus, and he gave this nice William Wallace-like speech before the battle. And in describing this Pax Romana, this is what he said. He said, to rob, slaughter, plunder, they give the lying name of empire. They make a desert and call it peace. So we see the flip side of this is that peace, any kind of peace that we may be able to maintain is gonna be behind the threat of violence. There's gonna be this threat of attack this threat of violence. It's not going to be a peace for everyone. There's quite a few people in the Roman Empire that you would talk to that would not feel like they were living in that Pax Romana. It might be good for the citizens of Rome, but if you were a persecuted Christian during this time, it's not necessarily going to be a peace-filled time. If you were one of these barbarian tribes that were being put down, it's not necessarily a peace-filled time, but in spite of the, the history lesson here, I really want us to see a different point, that, that throughout history, whether it's the Pax Romana or the Pax, Pax Britannia under the British Empire, even the Pax Americana we have right now, where there's this peace that America is supposed to bring to the world, there's always this desire for peace, this desire to bring peace, but there's this threat of violence behind it. And yet, this is one of the greatest news that we have, is that Even in the peace that God brings, there's this threat of violence, and yet we see in the good news of the gospel that the violence, the sword, is turned on himself. That in the gospel, he brings peace through the shedding of his own blood. That while we deserve the full wrath and violence that God brings, at the end of the day, the peace that he ushers in is not a peace that he's maintaining by the threat of putting you down, but the the peace that he brings by sacrificing his own his own son, so that we can have peace in him for eternity. And that's the context that I want us to look at this passage in Colossians. And so if you're there in Colossians chapter one, we're gonna hear a little bit about this peace. So he says in verse 15, talking about Jesus, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so in the middle of this passage, we see this peace that's won by the blood of the cross, but it's a peace that's, it doesn't mean peace in like the English sense of the word. It doesn't mean just a ceasefire. It doesn't mean we just stop fighting each other. It means uh, peace in all of these different areas that Paul's gonna talk about here. It means peace with God. It means peace with one another. It means reconciliation. It means forgiveness. It means we're able to, to, to this alienation from God that we feel is able to be removed. This uh, Hebrew idea of peace, this shalom, uh, was the, the, the Hebrew word for this. Tim Keller says it's multidimensional, complete well-being. It means physical well-being, psychological well-being, social well-being, and spiritual well-being. It flows, from, it flows from all of your relationships being put right with God, with self, and with others. That's the kind of peace that we desperately need, and that's the kind of peace that Jesus brings us through the blood, his own blood on the cross. And so this is what we're going to look at today is how this works out into several different areas. And so there's really just a couple of, of different points that we want to make today. We have a great need. That need is peace, and the price of that peace is Jesus. So we have this great need. That need is peace, and the price of that peace is Jesus. And so the first thing we want to look at, first thing we want to see is that our great need is peace. Our great need is peace. We have a couple things that come up under that. So our great need is peace. And we need peace with God because of our sin. We need peace with God because of our sin. We go all the way back to the very beginning. God created Adam and Eve in a place of peace, in this garden of Eden where this shalom ruled, where they could walk with him. They didn't feel that alienation from God. They didn't feel alienation from one another, but they were living truly in peace the way things were intended, the way that God created. But because of their sin, it brought all of humanity and all of creation out of peace with God and with one another. It brought, it brought enmity between people and God. It brought enmity between people and one another. And the sin was first and foremost against God. It was sin. It wasn't just doing bad. It wasn't just hurting one another. It was actually sinning first and foremost against God. We know the famous passage in Psalm 51 that David says where even though he murders someone, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned, God, and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is not just a thing that we do. It is a state of who we are. We're born into this sinful being, this being that rejects God, that acts against the will of God, that acts in, in a character, a way that's opposed to God, and that actively sabotages his design for peace and flourishing in our lives and in our relationships with one another and in our relationship with him. And we see very clearly in a passage like Romans 1 what the result of this is. It's not just one individual being alienated from God, but it's this downward spiral where individual people begin to celebrate what is evil, celebrate what is not good, celebrate what is out of character with God, and it brings entire societies down to their knees as they rebel collectively against God. So our sin becomes a part of a bigger sin, and it alienates entire cultures, entire countries, entire peoples from one another as they grow in violence and they grow in hatred, they grow in enmity with one another. We're scrambling in that kind of a place right now in our culture 
as we can't figure out what the answers are. And we, we look to one another and to different symptoms of a disease and blame those things. And yet what we need is reconciliation with God that will then flow into reconciliation and peace with one another. But we cannot recognize that until we get that the disease is sin. The disease is our sin against God, our creator, and then our sin against one another that flows out of that. And until we recognize that, we will not be able to solve or fix the problem in our own lives or in the communities and culture that we live in. The second thing we see is that we need, with pe- we need peace with God to avoid his wrath. Now, this is kind of a bad news first situation. We're looking at the great need that we have before we can turn to that good news. And we have to be honest about the fact that we need peace with God to avoid his wrath. As we saw, sin is against God and it angers him personally. It invites his anger and wrath towards us. Is this some kind of a divine temper tantrum? Is this just God not being forgiving? Is this just him not being loving enough? that kind of a thought process that comes really naturally to us because we are sinful people, we're like, why can't God just overlook this stuff? Why can't he just not worry about it? It's a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is and who we are. He's not just a little bit better version of us. He's completely different, completely other than we are. We can't really even grasp what pure goodness and holiness really is because of our own sinfulness and because of what that does to our ability to comprehend who God is. The wrath of God is not a comfortable thing for us to think about. It's not a comfortable thing for us to talk about. Why can't we just avoid it? Can't we just get peace without dealing with this wrath? And uh, R.W. Dale said this. He said, it's because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we believe it does not provoke the wrath of God. Think about it for a second. We don't, we don't have animosity towards sin. We don't have hatred towards sin. We've come to tolerate and to accept it, especially those sins that we're comfortable with in our own lives. Now, there is sin that we're wrathful about, but it's always going to be kind of out there sin, sin that other people are doing, big sins. We think about genocide. We think about the Holocaust. We think about human trafficking. We think about things, and we're like, yes, God, Punish those things. You know, where is God when those things are happening? Because we want his justice and his wrath on those things. But we don't have the same kind of attitude towards sin that we commit or sin that we've grown to accept or tolerate in our lives. We have to know the reality of sin so that we can understand what a great sacrifice Jesus gave in his own life on the cross to pay the price for that sin. So we have this this prospect of wrath over our heads that needs to be dealt with, and it can be dealt with in Christ and him alone. The third thing we see is that our sin and his wrath lead to divine judgment. Kind of connected to this last one. We can't flourish and be at peace if we're under the judgment and punishment of God. We can't have this shalom, this peace with God and with one another and this human flourishing if we are under the wrath of God. Again, it's not an idea that we like. We don't like thinking about the consequences of a life lived in sin. We don't like thinking about the natural consequences that come from it, much less the consequences that comes from his wrath. But there are consequences, whether it comes from just living in a life that's not the way we're designed to live 
or whether it comes from his judgment that he puts on us to bring us to repentance out of love that he has for us in this discipline that he puts on us. We don't like talking about it or thinking about it. And yet, how would we feel about a judge who allowed horrible things like we talked about, genocide, holocaust, the horrible things we see in the world, murder, evil, we see these things. How would we feel about a judge who just said, you know what, I'm just feeling pretty nice today. We're just going to let those things slide. The people who those were committed against would not feel very good about that. A society would have to be pretty corrupt to see something like that happen and not care and to look the other way. We would all kind of collectively look and say, that is evil. And yet, when it comes to us, we want him. Just look the other way. Just don't worry about the sin that I've committed. A judge who refused to punish obvious evil and sin would not be a good judge. Proverbs 24, 12 says, will he not repay each person according to what he has done? We have over us this divine threat of wrath and judgment that has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. Fourth thing we see is that sin destroys our peace, not just with God, but with one another as well. Sin destroys our relationships. It brings interpersonal strife. You look at pretty much, I was like, what's a story from the Bible that we can look at where that, oh, basically every story in the entire Old Testament is a story of how sin destroys people's relationships with God and with one another. And, and that's the exact same thing that occurs in our life. Our sin, if we look at the conflict in our life, if you look at your relationship with the people that you love the most, your spouse, your parents, your children, if you look at your coworkers, if you look at those relationships, at the end of the day, sin in some way or another damages those relationships. Sin is the, the thing that, that hurts and damages those things. Think about all the way back to, to Cain and Abel. We have this first, this rejection of God and his standard, and then we start to have this strife and enmity that's put between human beings and people. But it, it goes even bigger than that. Again, it's not just an individual thing. We're, we're connected to one another, and so it affects the body of Christ as well. We see the people of Israel, as they start to tolerate sin within, within their, their, uh, their nation, within their people, it's gonna start to put strife against them and other people, between them and God, and between them and other nations. Uh, so it's going to be this national thing that brings war and brings violence in. We also see it bringing strife between ethnic groups. We see the Jews versus the Gentiles, this racial and cultural strife that's brought into this as well. So we look at the world around us today, and we see this, this violence. We see this hatred. We see these things. We're like, why does this stuff? This stuff is are problems that have existed from the very beginning that have come about because of our rejection of God his standard for our lives, and because of our refusal to be reconciled to him, we have an inability to be reconciled to one another, whether that's our, our family members, whether that's our loved ones, whether that's people within the body of Christ, all the way to people who live around us in our communities. The fifth thing we see is we have the problem of uh, the God of this world, the God of this world. Satan tries to destroy our peace with one another. It's easy for us to forget a lot of times that this is a spiritual struggle that we're facing. Why do I need to be on my face in prayer before God? Why do I need to, to as Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 says, put on the full armor of God because our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the ruler of this dark age. Why do I need to, to, to equip myself to fight this spiritual battle? We cannot forget that it's not against other people. It's, it's against the, the rulers and principalities of this dark age. It's against sin itself. It's against Satan. We're, we're fighting a spiritual battle, and we're not gonna be able to overcome that apart from God. 
That's why that first step of reconciliation with God, first and foremost, is so important. Because apart from that, we're not going to have the spiritual help that we need, power that we need to overcome sin and to be reconciled to one another. And then the sixth thing is the problem of this groaning creation, the problem of creation being subject to futility as well. Let's be honest, we live in a, in a world that is, is not what God intended from the very beginning. God didn't intend for us to be confronted with disease. God did not intend for there to be natural disasters, for the health problems that we face, for, the, for the, the, you know, anything that the world can throw at us and that reality that whether or not we like it or not, we're under, like Zechariah was talking about at the beginning, this shadow of death. That's not the way that God intended for it to be. And so we need his peace because we know, and if we don't know, then we will know that there are some things that are outside of our control that we cannot fix ourselves, and all we can do is throw ourselves in the mercy and grace of the loving God. And so we need this peace that only he can bring. We need this peace that only he can bring. And so the second thing for us is that the price of our peace is Jesus. The price of our peace is Jesus. And so the first thing we see with this is that we find peace through union with Christ. We find peace through union with Christ. Are we located spiritually in Adam? Are we located spiritually in Jesus? We're born into sin, into flesh, into Adam as sinful people separated from God because of that sin. But through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, through his blood that we saw in Colossians, through the blood of the cross, we can be reconciled to God. So are we finding ourselves today in Adam or in Christ? When we act in our days, are we acting in Adam or in Christ? If we've been redeemed, if we've been saved, we no longer have to act out of that sin. We can act out of the spirit that God has put in us. We can act out of the character that that Jesus provides us. 1 Corinthians 17 says that anyone who's united with the Lord becomes one in spirit with him. That's the spirit that we can live out of. That's the spirit that we can act out of. I love what Calvin said. He said, all that Christ is, is nothing to us until we grow into him. So we have this salvation, we have this character, we have this new nature and this new reality that's been supplied to us in Christ, but we have to grow up into that reality. We have to live out of that reality to one another and towards God. So we experience this peace as a a spiritual blessing of growing into Christ. So as we grow into who we are in Christ, we begin to experience peace in our relationships with one another, with the people that we maybe didn't necessarily like before, the people we had problems with in the past. We can, as we grow in our nature, in our our character, in that, that character that God provides for us in Christ, we begin to have peace in those relationships. There's more peace in our home. There's more peace in our relationships with our coworkers and with the people that we uh, work together with in the body of Christ and, and in our communities. We begin to have more peace in those areas. We become peace-filled people as we grow up into Christ in those ways. The second thing is we find peace when our sins are forgiven. We find peace when our sins are forgiven. 
Think about Joseph's brothers in Genesis 50. Think about the situation they found themselves in. Uh, we see all of these elements that we've been talking about at play. Their sin put enmity between themselves and God. It put enmity between themselves and their brother, Joseph. It also is the world that they're living in. They were dealing with this famine because of the, the sinfulness of the world. There's this famine. They don't have food. They're suffering. They're struggling. They finally get to Egypt. They're ready to, to try to, to beg for some food so they can survive and help provide for their families. And all of a sudden, their sin comes back to bite them because now they find out the very one they betrayed is the, one who can, is the only one who can help them. And yet he's in a position where he can also punish them. And yet what does he do? He forgives them of their sin. And they're able to experience peace that they don't deserve. They're able to be provided for and taken care of, not because they deserve it. Imagine that moment where they realize he's not going to kill us because of what we did to him, even though we deserve it. Instead, he's gonna forgive us. And that's the peace that we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ as well. This God that we betrayed because of our actions has borne that sacrifice in himself so that we can have peace. We just have to go to him to find it. We just have to, to take that peace that he provides. So we find that peace when our sins are forgiven. The anxiety, the stress that our sin brings in this world that we live in brings. Hebrews 9.22 says, there's no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. And we saw there in Colossians, that shed blood is what brings us peace to him. We're forgiven because of this sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made in order that we could be reconciled to God. Third thing we see is that we find peace when we're cleansed by Jesus. We find peace when we're cleansed by Jesus. Another Old Testament passage that it's a picture that I can't, just can never get out of my mind is, is Zechariah chapter three. And there's this, this court scene where uh, Zechariah or the high priest is, is brought up to, to before, stand before God and Satan is accusing him before God and saying, how can you let this person stand before you in these filthy robes and these filthy clothes? If you know anything about a high priest, they, it was very specific what they were supposed to wear whenever they stood before God. It was a symbol of that holiness. And if they, they didn't wear this perfect thing, then they were, they were under the wrath of God. And, it, and they also, the high priest symbolizes all of his people, not just standing there before, as himself. And so he's standing here before God that, that Satan is accusing him before God. And, and Jesus steps out and says, not, I'm gonna put these clean clothes over those dirty clothes. We take these dirty clothes off and give him these pure, clean robes, cleansed by Jesus so that we can stand before God without experiencing that wrath and judgment. Clean conscience allows service and access to God without fear, without fear of judgment, without fear of condemnation, without fear of punishment. We're part of that family, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And I have to stand with him before him in fear. The fourth thing we see is that we find peace when we're justified in Christ and redeemed in we find peace when we're justified and redeemed in Christ. Justification means that our sins are paid for and Christ's righteousness is given to us. This status is, is not ours, but it's something that's been given to us in Christ. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift. 
we find peace with God also when we're redeemed. I like to think again of another picture in the Old Testament of the, the story of, of Ruth. You know, this is a person who's not even a part of the, the people of God. A person who, who loses everything and, and gives up everything to, to come back with her, her mother-in-law. And yet she finds this kinsman redeemer who gives her grace and gives her a new name and gives her a new family and a new people to be a part of and gives her life. And imagine going from homeless, impoverished, nothing, nameless, countryless, peopleless, to all of a sudden being brought into a family, provided for this mercy and grace that comes from this adoption to this new family. Or think about the, the people of of Israel in slavery in Egypt for years, groaning in agony to God because of this, and yet the feeling they must have felt when they're redeemed and brought out of that slavery, redeemed and adopted into his family. We, were, we belong to his family, and this can bring us peace. And the sixth thing we see is that we find peace when we're reconciled to God and to one another. We find peace when we're reconciled to God and to one another. There's a couple of passages that I want us to look at here. Uh, one of these is, is in Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five, starting in verse one. It says this. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love for, has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What an incredible promise of reconciliation and hope that we have in God that we see in this passage. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. And what, is, what does that mean? We've been given faith, we've been given grace so that we can endure the sufferings that we will inevitably face in life. We can have peace in the midst of those things. What an incredible power and gift that is. It's, it's not a false promise of peace that comes from a politician. It's not a false promise of peace that comes from being a citizen of a nation. It's not a false promise of peace that comes from being uh, right or, or having the right knowledge or, or understanding the right things or being prepared enough because all of these things will fail. But it's a promise of peace that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a guarantee of peace. And this guarantee that says in life you will suffer, you will have troubles, and yet you'll have peace in the midst of those sufferings and in the midst of those trials that you're gonna go through. And that's not something that we can gain for ourselves by belonging to any kind of party or people. It's something that only comes through Jesus Christ. And so we have this peace because of this reconciliation from God. We also have reconciliation to one another. There's this great passage over in uh, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two. Uh, looking at verse 11. Ephesians chapter two, looking at verse 11, it says, 
Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's so much depth in that passage. We see again, by the blood of the cross, which we just read about in Colossians, we see that what has he done here? He's taking, he's, he's speaking to, to Gentiles who were once separated from God. And he says, we have now, you've been made, through the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, have been made one with the people of God. So, so this is reconciling two nations together, two races and ethnicities together, two peoples who for, for much of history hated each other. He says, you've been reconciled to one another because of what Jesus has done for you. He is our peace. He's broken down, I love this, broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Think about our lives and the, the dividing walls of hostility that exist between us and others. Think about, you know, at times when you have that hostility between your loved ones, at times we have hostility between others. He breaks down those dividing walls of hostility. It is possible for us to be reconciled to people. There are no people that we cannot be reconciled to through Jesus. Not because we're so great or we're so understanding or we're such nice people, but because of what Jesus did. We can be reconciled to one another. This is, this is far from ignoring the real sin that people commit against one another. It starts with that and says, yes, we have done each other wrong, and yet Christ reconciles us one to another through the blood that he spilled on the cross. Reconciliation with God is the necessary condition for reconciliation and peace between people. We are reconciled one, one before God to, to God, and then we're reconciled one to another. Finally, we find ultimate peace with God. This is the sixth and last thing here. We find ultimate peace with God and others. We find ultimate peace with God, others, and the world when Christ returns. We find ultimate peace with God, others, and the world when Christ returns. We can't find perfect peace now. Okay, we, we are living in this sinful time. There's still, uh, there's still people who are, are objects of God's wrath, who refuse to be reconciled to God, who are living in sin. The world is still subjected to futility and groaning and waiting for Christ to appear. That's still the reality that we live in. We can hope and work for peace and reconciliation here and now. But as believers, we also have this understanding that ultimate peace and reconciliation is something we're hoping for and longing for when Christ returns. We don't forget about that. So it doesn't mean we're not those who sit back and just say, well, I'm not gonna do anything because it's only Jesus who's gonna come and do it. No, because we've seen time and time again throughout these passages of scripture we've looked at today that we have access to this power through Christ now to be reconciled to God and to one another. And so we work towards those things and, and celebrate when we're able to break down these dividing walls of hostility and find peace. But we also recognize that that ultimate peace is gonna come when Christ returns. I love this passage, uh, that, uh, this, uh, this 
quote from A.W. Tozer. He said, the fall of man has created a perpetual crisis. It will last until sin has been put down and Christ reigns over a redeemed and restored world. Until that time, the earth remains a disaster area and its inhabitants live in a state of emergency. To me, it's always been difficult to understand those Christians who insist upon living in the crisis as if no crisis existed. We do not want to be those Christians who are living in the crisis of the current age as if there's no crisis that exists with our heads in the sand. We We recognize the world that we live in. We recognize our need for peace, and we have access to that peace through Jesus. What an incredible gift it is, that not because of any good of ours, that people are out there looking for peace in so many places. If I could just have enough money, I could have peace in my life. If I could just have my mortgage paid off and my car payments paid off, I could just get this promotion at work. If I could just have this and I could have peace, if my, my health could be better, if this could be better, if, if I have better friends, if I had a better boss, if I had whatever it is, then I could have peace. And yet we know we have the truth that peace comes through Christ and Christ alone, that we can be in any situation we find ourselves in. No matter how difficult, we can have that peace through Jesus. Not because we have our heads in the sand and realize that the world is a fine and happy place, but because we recognize exactly how sinful the world is and know that he is better. Know that he is better, and that's the peace that we can have in that moment. So really simple application for this today. Really simple application, just a couple things. First of all, just look to Christ and point others to Christ. It seems like a a very just sort of Jesus answer to give, a little Sunday school kind of answer to give. And yet the truth of it applied to our lives can be really difficult at times. To look to Christ in each moment, to live out of his character instead of living out of our desires. We understand that that our desires and, and our way destroys peace messes up our relationships with other people, messes up our relationship with God. But to walk in the character that we have been given in Christ every single day, to recognize the spiritual nature of this struggle, to go to our knees in prayer and ask for him to fill us with this character of his son, Jesus, so that we can love one another when they don't deserve it, so that we can forgive others as we wanna be forgiven so that we can live out this character that he has, so that we can be at peace with God and with one another, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our our faith. The to-do list, very simple. Look to Jesus. Encourage others to look to Jesus. Christmas, we hear this message of love and peace and him coming. This is why it's such a real meaning to this peace that only he brings because we find ourselves in a world very similar to the people who Jesus came into, a pagan world with no love for God, with no idea how to bring peace and find peace. All their efforts and attempts at making peace were just making it worse. We find ourselves in that same situation where all around us, people are trying to find peace, be reconciled to one another, and all their efforts are just making it worse. We have the answer. Now, because we're so smart, because for whatever reason, God, in his love for us, has chosen to, to, to pour out that love for us in Christ. What good news we have that we can share with the people around us. We can pursue Jesus and point others to Jesus each and every day.